thinking, how can Thanksgiving, how can it not be Christmas or, or maybe Easter, but Thanksgiving? I remember his reasoning for loving Thanksgiving so much was that it had not been corrupted by the world, that it hadn't been hijacked by commercialism. And he just completely loved Thanksgiving. And the reality is that there is a, a long history of God's enemy trying to hijack, to commercialize, uh, to take over uh, the celebration, the wonderful and great celebration of God breaking into history as that baby born in Bethlehem. We're going to get into God's word in just a few moments, and we're going to see uh, in this uh, latter part of Titus chapter 2, my my subject for this morning is fighting worldliness at Christmas. We're going to talk about fighting worldliness in general, but also at Christmas time specifically. It's going to take us a few minutes to get there. I wanted to begin this morning uh, giving you some history of how God... uh, how Christmas, rather, has been corrupted by the world. Some of you may be familiar with David Brainerd. He was a missionary to the Native Americans, to the Indians back in 1700s. And I want to start this morning by reading from his journal on Christmas Day, 1745. He wrote, The Indians have been used upon Christmas days to drink and revel among some of the white people in these parts. I thought it proper this day to call them together and discourse to them upon divine things, which I accordingly did from the parable of the barren fig tree, Luke 13, 6 through 9. A divine influence, I'm persuaded, accompanied the word at this season. The power of God appeared in the assembly. The impressions made upon the assembly in general seemed not superficial, but deep, and heart-affecting. Oh, how ready did they now appear universally to embrace and comply with everything they heard and were convinced was duty. God was, in their, God was in the midst of us, melting stubborn hearts. How many tears and sobs were then to be seen and heard among us. What liveliness and strict attention, what eagerness and intenseness of mind appeared in the whole assembly in the time of divine service. They seemed to watch and wait for the dropping of God's word as the thirsty earth for the former and latter rain. Wouldn't you love to have been there in that, that meeting on that Christmas day in 1745? Uh, the reality is that Christmas back then in colonial America was kind of like New Year's Eve is today. It was a time for partying. And people who loved the Bible and who loved the gospel actually distanced them, themselves from Christmas. Brainerd uh, saw these, these Indians that he was hoping to reach with, with the gospel, and he calls them out of you know, not, a, not a joyous celebration of the Lord party, but calls them out of a, an ungodly party, preaches the word to them, and the Holy Spirit just fell upon them. It's a beautiful thing what Brainerd did, but it also gives us a picture of how uh, Christmas was uh, in trouble uh, back then. If we move forward in history, uh, Christmas uh, changes. And one historian who uh, taught at the University of Chicago and later uh, at Cambridge, he writes this in his book. He says, In the eyes of the early New England Puritans, Christmas was a menace to the pure Christian spirit. Can you believe that? Fearing popish idolatry, 
the General Court of Massachusetts in 1659 passed an act punishing with a fine of five shillings for each offense anybody who is found observing by abstinence from labor, feasting, or any other way, any such days as Christmas Day. Christmas was actually illegal in Massachusetts um, in the in the early uh, colonial period. This historian goes on. He writes in his diary for 1685, Judge Samuel Sewell, for example, expressed his satisfaction that on Christmas Day he saw everybody conducting business as usual. During the next two centuries, while Christmas was somehow Americanized, it still remained a simple folk holiday marked by no grand religious observance and with little commercial significance. The season is hardly recognizable, for example, in the pages of the New York Tribune for the month of December 1841, which are barren of flashy Christmas advertising and simply repeat the unchanging copy which merchants had run for months. By the era of the Civil War, Christmas was beginning to be transformed. There were signs that the holiday was on its way to becoming a spectacular nationwide festival of consumption. On December 24, 1867, the first Christmas Eve, when R.H. Macy's remained open until midnight, the stores set a record with one-day receipts of $6,000. So we see this transition of this festival of, of corruption and partying is what Christmas was known for. Liberal churches celebrated Christmas, those that had abandoned the gospel, and also partiers and revelers. And then we see this transformation where Christmas has become commercialized, what he calls a, a festival of consumption. And Christmas is, of course, neither of these things. It is, it is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, it, it is mind-boggling to think of the creator of the universe creating everything that he has for the universe, for the earth to be existing for thousands and thousands of years. And then some 2,000 years ago, this creator, the second person of the Godhead, becomes a human being, a baby born in Bethlehem. And that is what Christmas is about, and it's about celebrating the beginning of that gospel. I've given us this, this historical uh, introduction here because the reality is this this festival of, of consumption or consumerism uh, affects every one of us. Uh, the busyness, the buying of gifts, of all of these kinds of things can, can take away from what we should really be celebrating this time of year. We've, we've come a long way financially, too. I looked uh, in the New York Times uh, this last week from uh, Macy's being open uh, and setting a record of $6,000 on Christmas Eve. Now the Christmas Eve festival of consumption begins on midnight on Thanksgiving. And we Americans spent $11.4 billion from midnight Thanksgiving till midnight on Black Friday. Is that amazing? $400 per shopper, $11.4 billion. The reality is, whether it's the busyness, the consumerism, just all of the parties, it is easy for us to be distracted from the birth of Christ, which is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do now is pray, let's bow our heads, and we're going to get into Titus and ask God to help us to fight worldliness. Let's pray together. Father, um, we give you praise.
for your Son, Jesus Christ. In this time of year, the season of Advent, we want to celebrate His coming. We want to dwell on the beauty and the majesty and the magnificence of the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Lord, I pray that as we look at Your Word now that You would speak to each of us in the variety of ways that we need to be spoken to, Lord, go beyond anything that I would say and use your word and your Holy Spirit to transform our hearts and lives. And we pray that an outcome of our time together over these next few minutes would be that we would be better equipped to fight against worldliness for the sake of Jesus Christ every day, but also at this this Christmas season. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would uh, turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Joe has read this passage for us, and we are going to pick it up in verse 11. As you are turning there, I'll just remind you that Titus, or Paul rather, has written to Titus, this young pastor, and he's basically told him in these first paragraphs uh, what should be taught to various groups, to the uh, younger women, the older women, younger uh, men and older men, uh, slaves or bond servants. And then we come to verse 11, and, and this is where we're, we're going to spend our time in verses 11 through 14. And, um, and, then, and then I will come back and we'll go through uh, five points of fighting worldliness at, at Christmas as far as application. So let's read again beginning at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things Uh, You, you, Titus, should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. All right, well, let's back it up now to verse 11, and I'm going to walk through each of these verses over the next few minutes, kind of phrase by phrase. And verse 11 is really what brought me to preach this passage. You may have been thinking as Joe was reading, isn't this Advent? What are we reading Titus 2 for? But if you look at verse 11, um, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. And this verb that is translated has appeared is the very first word uh, in the sentence. Uh, In Greek, if you want to emphasize a particular thing, a particular word, you can throw that word at the very beginning of the sentence or the very end of the sentence for emphasis. And that's what what Paul, uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has done here. And so at the very beginning, we have this appearing. What has appeared, the grace of God that brings salvation to all men. And so this appearance is is focusing on the coming of Jesus Christ, the first coming. It is focusing not just on his birth in Bethlehem, but it is also focusing on his life and his death and his resurrection, the complete and finished work of Christ. We know this if you look at verse 11 because it's talking about uh, God. The word is talking about God bringing salvation uh, to all men. The, uh, the phrase to all men has, has brought some controversy. Some people wrongly uh, understand verse 11 to be teaching that every single person is saved, that everyone is going to uh, be going to heaven. 
we know that that is not what is intended here for a variety of reasons. One of them is the, this very helpful principle to study the Bible is Scripture interprets Scripture. And when we read a passage and we might think, gosh, is this saying that everyone is going to be saved? We want to say, well, I need to look at other portions of Scripture. And as we do that, we see that the Bible teaches very clearly that the road is narrow, that, that few find the way. The Bible teaches that there will be many people who, will, who on that judgment day regretfully will say, uh, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Didn't we do this? And he says, away from me. I never knew you. And I could go on and on. There are many, many passages that teach that we are saved by faith alone. And those that find that salvation in Christ are, are few in number. So again, verse 11, we have, uh, we have this appearing. And, and that's what made me think of, of doing this text here on the second Sunday of Advent because we have this emphasis on the whole gospel, but especially on the appearing of Jesus Christ at his first coming. And then we also have this huge and important concept in verse 11, this word grace. Grace, the unmerited favor of God. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to us all. Uh, one, uh, one writer has said it is not an exaggeration to say that in Paul's writings, grace becomes a synonym for Christianity. Yeah, I've heard, you've probably heard the, uh, the acronym uh, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. And grace makes Christianity stand out. Uh, Christianity, of course, is the only true religion in the world. But it is unique in this, in this uh, teaching of grace that can be a synonym uh, for our faith. Virtually every other religion of the world teaches that you've got to do. You've got to do this. You have got to do good works and perhaps you will make it or that's the way uh, to make it. But Christianity teaches that we cannot do anything of our own. We cannot earn anything. It is all of grace. So verse 11 the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Let's look at verse 12. Uh, the NIV says, It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So the NIV helps us out in verse 12 by using this, this uh, little two-letter word, uh, it, to describe what is teaching us. Uh, it's grace. Uh, Paul here is personifying grace and letting us know, speaking as though grace is a person, that what is going to teach us to say no to ungodliness and what is going to teach us to say yes to living godly lives, it is going to be the grace of God. So the grace of God not only saves us by faith, but this same grace helps us to live out the Christian life. In fact, that is all that is really going to help us to really move we, we need to be disciplined. We need to apply ourselves. But apart from the grace of God, apart from the power of the gospel, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, our works are of no value. So the grace of God has brought this salvation, and it is teaching us to say no to ungodliness, and it is teaching us to say no to worldly passions. Ungodliness is, is referring to, um, can refer to, uh, is simply ignoring God. The reality is all of us can live at times, even believers, in such a way that we um, ignore him. We make our decisions apart from his influence. And so the grace of God helps us to, to, to say no 
to ungodliness. And it also helps us to say no to worldly passions. Let me tell you what worldly passions are. There's, there's two ways, uh, two meanings to this. This is what the grace of God does. It teaches us to say no to worldly passions. And the first thing that worldly passions are would be a desire for something forbidden, a desire for something evil. But worldly passions are also an excessive desire for good things. And this is kind of where I'm going to be, um, where we're going to be applying more uh, today in this second uh, understanding, the second way of understanding um, worldly passions. The grace of God is teaching us to say uh, no to these things. And I'm going to spend about five points coming out of verse 12 of, of application in just a minute. So we'll come back to, to this um, this phrase, worldly passions, and God's helping us to say no to those. So that's the negative part in verse 12. And then we have the positive part in verse 12 as well that says that he has called us, that grace is teaching us or instructing us or training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. He's calling us to be uh, self-controlled, uh, which is um, moderate, to, to be modest or to, sh- to, um, to live uh, modestly. Secondly, to be, uh, to be upright. This is um, Christ-honoring integrity in our relationships. Uh, this, this is the second term, what he's calling us to do, to live in an upright way. Um, God is looking for us to be more than moral or, or more than ethical. People of all different uh, religions and faiths uh, are, are trying to be ethical and, and actually achieving that uh, goal of being ethical or being moral. But God is wanting us to be moral in such a way that we honor Jesus Christ. And that involves speaking his name. That involves talking about him from time to time. And we need the boldness of Jesus Christ and the boldness of the Holy Spirit to help us to do that. Before we, um, before we move to Auburn, we lived in uh, Cool, and uh, I would be driving through that canyon many, many times. Many of you have, have done that, and, and uh, people often say, how could you live over there? Anybody driven through uh, the canyon? A lot of you have. Some of you, a couple of you still live over there in Cool. John, for example. But one of the things that I would do when I was driving through the canyon is there would be people that, that were looking for a ride, and uh, hitchhikers, and I would pick them up, and I wouldn't always have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. But what I would do is I would just ask God to help me to say to that person before they got out of my car that the reason I picked you up is because I'm a Christian. The reason that I picked you up is because I love God. And so, so that is the kind of outworking that he is looking for us to do, um, to, to mention the reason that we are moral or doing good works is because of the gospel, because of Jesus Christ. So back to verse 12, this grace has taught us to say no to these things, and he's also, this grace is also teaching us or training us to say yes, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Godly meaning that all of our orientation is to be uh, centered on him. Let's move on to verse 13. So it says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And verse 13 is the reference to the second coming. And this is, again, why I selected this passage today. We have in verse 11, 
we have this emphasis on the first coming. And then in verse 13, we have this emphasis on the second coming. And we are living in between these two comings of Jesus Christ. And we need to be reminded, the word is reminding us that we are living and waiting for this blessed hope, for this appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Another commentator writes this, says, Christ has come, and yet not all things have reached completion. While we remember Israel's waiting and hoping, we give thanks for Christ's birth, we also anticipate his second coming at the end of time. For this reason, Advent is a time for discipline and intentional repentance and the confident expectation and hope of Christ's coming again. He is coming again. Amen? And he wants us to be ready. And this is a big part of what the Advent season is about. We've lit the second candle here. We're, We're moving toward Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, the celebration of the birth of Christ. But we are but we are also looking forward in this event season of Advent. Reminding ourselves that Jesus Christ is coming back for us and he wants us to be ready. So this is a time of of repentance. This is a time of of searching our souls and making sure that we are we are right with God. Uh, Every year, pretty much every year, uh, my wife goes away to women's retreat. And some of you may have had this same uh, thing happen in your household that when a mom goes away, um, things start to kind of pile up around the house uh, pizza boxes uh, start to kind of pile up. The dishes uh, don't seem to find their way into the dishwasher uh, very well. And there's, there's, there's kind of this increasing uh, level of disorder in the home. But we know that she is coming back. And, and that there's a definite point with cell phones. Where we know when she is coming back. And what do we need to do? We get the house ready because we love her and she's coming back and we don't want to experience the wrath of mom when she returns. And so we get the dishes in. We get things cleaned up. And this is, this is what Advent is. We are getting ready for our Savior who is coming back for us. It's not just a, a festival. It is not at all a festival of consumption. But it is also not just the time, Advent, to remember the birth of Christ, but it is to long for the return of Christ and for us to get ready for his return. That is what verse 13 is saying. And this is just a beautiful Advent text. Verse 11 is first coming. Verse 13, his second coming. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. A lot of people are are confused and troubled by the fact that it's been over 2,000 years and Christ hasn't come back yet. There are lots of verses in Scripture, which I believe rightly understood, teach that they thought that he could have returned in that first generation. And it's been 2,000 years. I don't pretend to know why in total that it has been so long, but I think part of the answer is right here in verse 14. He gave himself to redeem from us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. So part of the reason that he hasn't come back yet is that we do not have the house cleaned up. We are not a people of the level of purity that God is wanting to see. And we have got to search our hearts, to confess our sins, and to be right and to be ready. This is what the season of Advent is about. It is not a festival 
of consumption. And then finally, um, verse 15, these then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. This finishes this section. And then, like I said, what I want to do in the remainder of our time is kind of go back to verse 12 where this great power, the power of the gospel, the grace of God, which is teaching us to do, to say no to uh, ungodliness and worldly passions and to say yes to godliness. I want to spend uh, the rest of our time talking about how we can actually fight worldliness in general and also at Christmas time. The first thing uh, I've really already alluded to, and that is that we rely on the power of Christ and his grace, uh, not yourself. It is grace that helps us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It is not me just determining, I am going to do this. I am going to be determined. I am going to be disciplined. I can stop this. I can, I, I've got to stop doing this. That is not uh, sufficient uh, for us to actually achieve godliness and to say no to worldly passions, which again, I said, are, are two things. One is the desire for things that are, that are wicked but also the desire for things that are good, the excessive desire for things that are good. And, and that's, I don't know about you, but for me that is, that is where I need the most, uh, the most help, and that's where I'm going to spend uh, some time talking so, uh, about these points of application. So, so number one, we rely on the power of his grace. Um, we need to be asking for his help. A second point, and, and I think probably the most important one, the one I would want you to stick with you the most out of these five is that we are called to love Christ and his kingdom more than the things of this world. If we are really going to say no to ungodliness and say no to worldly passions, the main way to do that is not with an orientation that says, God, help me to say no to these things I might love too much. Help me to say no to uh, my mountain bike or my iPad or even my wife or my children or my house. Uh, that, 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 is, that is not the way uh, primarily that we are to go. Uh, we, are, we need to ask him to help us to love him more than anything else so that all of these other things can be put uh, into place, these things that, are, are, that we're tempted for them to become worldly passions. Take a look here on the screen at Luke 9. It says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very soul? This, is, this, this for me, is a, is a very important uh, couple little words here because many of us, I think, if we're not reminded of the truth of Scripture, we think, well, God is really upset with me. I've blown it again, and, and, and my way out of this is just to, to deny, to deny, to... To, um, to just try to eliminate the bad things of my life. I've got to get rid of these bad things. I've got to get rid of these bad things. I've got to get rid of them. And I think, although that is true, the general orientation that God, the, the way that we're going to get rid of those things is by loving him. And so this little phrase, whoever loses his life, and life here is referring to our life in the flesh, our life of worldly passions, our life apart from Christ. Um, if, if we lose that life for him, for him, you see, we're gaining this beautiful king and God who loves us. If we, if we love him, then we're, these things that we need to lose completely are going to be lost, and the good things that we're, we're putting too much emphasis on are going to be put into place. We're called to love Christ and his kingdom more than the things of the world. 
I was reading a, a sermon uh, not long ago by a guy named Thomas Chalmers, and he tells a story uh, in there um, about uh, the, the different ways of thinking of, of getting rid of worldly passions and worldly uh, desires. And he utilizes um, a person's home and property uh, as though it was uh, their worldly passions and desires. And said, okay, you, you, here's, your, your goal is to have the guy burn his house and property down, which, which symbolizes his worldly desires. And if you told that guy, you know what? You've got to burn your house and property down so that you can inherit eternal life. If that guy really believed that that was the way to inherit eternal life, which would be foolish, but if he believed that, uh, he might begrudgingly burn his property and house down. But on the other hand, if we told that same guy that if you burn your property and house down, you are not only going to inherit a kingdom, but a beautiful and loving king that will last forever. This kingdom is going to have house upon house and mansion upon mansion, and he is going to care for you, and he is the God of the universe, and none of this is ever going to fade. None of it's going to, to go away. You need to burn down your property and house. That, that guy's going to do that joyfully because he's going to see how beautiful, how beautiful and how awesome it would be to have this eternal kingdom with this great king in charge of it. And that is to be our primary motivation in, in doing away with the things of the world, with saying no to worldly passions. Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. He says, worldly affections are never overcome and subdued any other way than by heavenly affections prevailing above them. We need our hearts to be trained by the grace of God to love him more than anything else. And these things, if they're evil, we will, we will be glad to get rid of them and burn them down. And if they're just good things that we've put in the place of God, we will put them into place. So we rely uh, on the power of Christ and his grace. We love Christ and his kingdom more than anything else in the world. And then a third way, and on these last few points, I'm, I'm getting into the neighborhood of Christmas here. Uh, we're talking about how to fight worldliness. And now at Christmas time, uh, I want to suggest that we give generously uh, to those in need. And we've already done that some with the uh, Christmas uh, box here. Our church family has the, uh, what is that thing called? Operation Christmas Child. Thank you. We've already done that some. Um, I believe there's more for you and for I to do uh, this Christmas season. This is one of the ways that we're going to be able to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness is by giving generously uh, to those who are in need. Matthew 5, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Christmas is a great time for us to gather as families and to give presents to one another. But we should be mindful that that isn't distinct, uh, that that isn't really gospel work, that that, that isn't, it's a beautiful thing. We're going to do that. We love that. But I want to suggest to us that this Christmas season that we give generously to those in need. Maybe it's somebody that you work with talking about one guy in our Sunday school class this morning that, that uh, a guy who's in need, who needs to be given generously to, needs to be prayed for. Probably all of us have someone like that at work or at school or wherever our daily activities take us to that, that we need to show gospel love to. Um, I had, uh, lunch with, um, had lunch with a family uh, 
this past week from Cornerstone. I didn't ask their permission to mention them, so I won't mention who it is. We've got a small small church family here, so half of you will be figuring this out before I'm done. But um, I was talking to him about Thanksgiving. So how, how, how was your Thanksgiving? And uh, he talked about um, having Julaine. Some of you have met Julaine, who's attended church here a few times, who came here first. Her first time coming here was to come to the gathering in, homeless woman. And they had Julaine to her house for Thanksgiving. And I just was, I was just so blessed to hear that, um, that she is seeing and hearing the gospel in tangible ways uh, this time of year as believers in Jesus Christ are reaching out to her. This is someone that cannot pay, be paying the people back that she's reaching out to. We saw her the other night at, at our piano recital for our kids' piano recital. Here's this lady who's, who was on the street not long ago, and there's another family who's loving on her, and she's at, she's at the piano recital. This is gospel work. This is how we can say no to worldly passions and to the festival of consumption that Christmas has become uh, through our world. Uh, one, uh, two, two more points. Number four, uh, moderate the buying of gifts. And this is kind of for parents. And this is something that we learned uh, a few years ago. It took us a few years, actually, to learn this. That what we were doing originally is our kids were, they're still little, but when they were even littler, itty-bittier than they are now, um, Christmas morning was just this, this sea of countless presents, which in our case was, was breeding, uh, feeding covetousness. It was, just, it was just all about stuff. Uh, Dave uh, Harvey has said that uh, coveting with cash is materialism. If you have cash and you're coveting, you end up with materialism. And we need to be careful of that. And so we came up with this thing where we, we get each of our kids four gifts. We have a gold frankincense myrrh and swaddling cloths gift. And, you know, Parent, parents, uh, th- my point isn't that you need to do what we're doing, but we need to be thinking and making sure that not, we're not breeding materialists. And we're not getting sucked into the festival of consumption. Even as we give gifts to one another, we still do that. I'm not with the Puritans. I think, I think, they, um, I think they were wrong in, in outlawing uh, Christmas. Can I get an amen to that this morning? Um, we weren't in their uh, culture and time and day, but I think it shouldn't have been outlawed. But it also shouldn't be a festival of consumption. So moderate the buying of gifts. And then finally, um, just in the realm of Christmas, uh, complete gift buying as soon as possible so that you can spend some time in God's word. As I think about our church family in these next coming weeks, how beautiful would it be is as we get close to Christmas that we're not running around like chickens with our heads cut off trying to go to different parties and get all these presents and get all these things. But we've gotten, we've moderated that We've gotten that out of our way, and we're able to spend some time lingering in John 1, 1 to 14, and in Luke 2, and in Matthew 1, and in the prophecies in the Old Testament talking about Christ's birth. We're able to just just sit alone with the Scriptures, just just the pure Word of God, and to think and just just be hit with the truth of God of the universe being born as a baby in Bethlehem. And that our festivities and our parties and our gift giving and all of that would just, would just at the core have that truth, which is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you.
for Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have to celebrate his coming. We thank you for your patience with your church. And we pray that we, as individuals and as a congregation, Cornerstone would be a church that is getting the house cleaned up. That each of us, Lord, would be searching our hearts, searching our lives. That we would be knowing that you are coming back soon and that we are ready. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be covered with guilt, but we would have the kind of freedom, that kind of freedom that Adam spoke about at the confession earlier in the service, God, that we have been declared righteous by faith and that by love, by love for you and by the power of your grace, those things, those worldly passions that need to be completely burned and gone, that, they would, that, that you would help us by your grace to do that. And then for those things that we love that are good, that we would just put those in their place. And that this Christmas would be a time of celebration, of praise, and of a deepening love for Jesus Christ and his first and second comings. Help us, God, as we wait for that return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The worship team is going to come uh, come up at this time. Let's all uh, stand.